It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The pumpkin eater is over. I'm a perfectly normal man, and I'm capable of fancying somebody else. This is the moment they had hungered for. The phone is still. The children all in bed. Now they are alone. Just the two of them. It is the worst thing that could have happened. A love story completely unconventional. A love match gripped by physical attraction, torn apart by emotional violence. I want to go away with you. Come back with you. Live with you. You will. Sniggering for. I think it's funny, I suppose, because I tell the truth for once. The truth? <laughs> 
but I'm capable of fancying somebody else. I'm a perfectly normal man, and I'm capable of fancying somebody else. The Pumpkin Eater is produced by Romulus Films and directed by Jack Clayton. Makers of Room at the Top. Written for the screen by Harold Pinter, one of England's foremost playwrights of this century. Academy winner Anne Bancroft stars as the much-married woman drifting from husband to husband, trapped by a sensuality she can neither control nor confess. Peter Finch, her third husband, she needs him close. So close there is no room for love. Of course, Jake is the most fabulous husband and father. He's the most fabulous husband and Can I get it? Oh, James Mason as a betrayed husband. Hate is almost a hobby, and blackmail almost a profession. I made her swear on the baby's head that she was telling the truth. I brought the baby in and made her swear on his head. If ever I hear his stinking voice, I'll pull it out of his throat. You tell him to keep off, well off. I was never unfaithful to anyone in my life, to anyone ever. What a bloody hypocrite you are. Did you stay the night? I wish you'd shut up. I wish you'd die. Nothing quite like the pumpkin eater has ever been filmed before. There has never been quite such a story to tell. This movie, Andy. Did you know what to expect? Had you done any research before you turned it on? Uh, Well, I mean, only because, you know, just the typical prep, like pulling trailers and uh, stuff like that. I was doing some, some research on on the box office and stuff. So I already had a sense as to like the type of story it was. And I'd read some loose uh, synopses. So I had a sense as to what I was walking into with this one, Uh, but still not having ever seen it before. And it's also one of those films where I'm like, had I even heard of this movie before? I I'm honestly not quite sure, but um, let's just say the whole pumpkin eater experience. When we put this list together, uh, for this particular series, largely because we would get to talk about The Train, which is our next pick. Um, this was one of those ones where I'm like, huh, Jack Clayton, I love The Innocents. Right. i certainly be curious about talking about this one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's fair to say, and, and it's just, I have a, uh, is it a personal bent? I don't love movies about marriages in trouble, right? I recognize great movies about marriages in trouble, but it's not a space I like to live in. And I don't like had I known what the movie was about and not doing the show, I probably wouldn't have watched this. I would have picked something else. But man, is my experience with this movie. It is a great movie. I won't watch again. It is. I mean, (laughs) the performances were fantastic. The deep conflict I was feeling as I was going through this movie, figuring out when I should feel compassion for Peter Finch's character. Uh, like they, it, it, Pinter and uh, Penelope Mortimer, author of the book, uh, and, and Clayton, like the entire package made a movie that was, that was for me equivalent to the great sort of modern social horror movies, right? Like it just, it was, every scene was uh, an opportunity to cringe at something else that, that is, difficult in a relationship to adapt to how many children can you possibly have in a single relationship she was going to try to break that record i i really enjoyed my time with this i was surprised at the fact that i had never even heard of the movie that that i have such high esteem for 
What do you think? I mean, I agree. I, I absolutely loved it. It was a real surprise to me. Um, I mean, again, I had kind of done a little bit of reading up on it. And so I kind of knew it was a drama. And it's this um, woman, she's in her fourth marriage. She had, I think, seven kids from previous marriages, has one child with Jake, gets pregnant again with Jake. It's, I mean, it, it made for a very interesting depiction, not just of marriages at the time, but also there's this real sense of the treatment of women, the way that people viewed um, handling uh, when their wife might be depressed or be going through some other form of a mental illness, whatever the case may be. But somebody who clearly has perhaps shifted her passion for or her need for finding comfort from somebody when she's not getting it from her husband into, well, I'll just have more kids to find that comfort. And it was a very interesting kind of like a psychological portrait of this, this woman as she's trying to figure it out. And it's, it's fascinating construction too. And that was something I really enjoyed about the film that I think perhaps really lent to why I enjoyed it so much, because we are kind of jumping a little bit back and forward uh, through some flashbacks in time as we're, uh, and it's it's also not super clear, like, with the flashbacks, like, how far apart things are, which actually made it, for me, um, kind of more interesting. Because it's not, like, a clear, like, bookend to this story. It's just like, okay, I'm not exactly sure where we are, but she's obviously contemplating all of these situations that had happened as she's kind of sorting through things, and we build to the end. I don't know. I just found it to be a fascinating construction with incredible core performances that just i mean really uh, they knocked it out of the park with this one and i mean Anne bancroft geez uh so good and just i mean again jack clayton like you said working uh, again with oswald morris just like the the way that they positioned cameras like the, that one shot when she's coming down the stairs and jack is talking to the doctor in the downstairs room and she kind of comes down the stairs and sits on the stairs and she's looking through the, the railings and it just kind of creates this, like this prison look for her that just, I mean, they just continually found interesting ways to, to shoot this thing that just really made it work well for me. I think so too. I, I, I really do. I, I do want to get it out of the way off the table. Uh, the connection to Peter, Peter pumpkin eater. <laughs> it is at, at first a really loose connection to the material. Apparently, it comes from the book. I did not look at the the Mortimer book, but it is the, you know, had a wife, couldn't keep her, put her in the pumpkin shell, kept her very well. That's the idea is that she is, uh, she's the wife, she's in the pumpkin shell, she's used uh, as the domestic and the breeding machine, and... That is the that is the statement that it's trying to make. There is n- nothing else in the film that really indicates uh, that the nursery rhyme is prominent. Maybe it's more prominent. In the book didn't I, I didn't have not read the book. Apparently, it's not. Uh, apparently, in the book, it's just the epigraph at the beginning of the book that okay. just kind of just designed to contextually set you up for exactly what you said. Just kind of like put that sense of Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater. And kind of the way that he views his wife, and then it kind of gives you a sense of where you're going with this. Well, even as the epigraph, it's more prominent than in the movie. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. exactly. I, I want to start with uh, I, I want to start with Peter Finch, which is weird because the movie's not 
really singularly about him, but I think he he represents one of the things that at least to my eye made the movie challenging because I it was it, you know there there wasn't a beat that went by in this movie that I didn't have a sort of sympathetic relationship with Joe. The roller coaster of watching what how Peter behaved and Peter's cat just sort of building nest of lies that he was sort of cultivating and yet how he was sort of put in this position of having to respond to someone depressed and in an era when there wasn't great handling for depression made it really complicated to watch this character and feel both compassion and detest right him at the same time uh what was your take on on his character in sort of relationship to that to the two of them well i mean he certainly is an interesting figure in this story because it certainly feels like we're meant to judge him a little more because i mean he's the essentially the antagonist of our film as we're watching her story and she's trying to figure things out he is pretty much a philanderer like right out of the gate you know the the scene with the scenes with philpot are pretty early in the story and i mean let's just say she meets jake while she's married to her third husband and you know according to her like she's never cheated so clearly based on that she probably got a divorce and then hooked up with jake but you know had that interest but he clearly knew she was a married woman and was already kind of expressing interest in her so he always kind of seemed to have that draw to whoever it was who was available, regardless of whether they were married or not. And that's definitely his angle. And he seems like the sort of husband who, I mean, he's obviously, over the course of the film, we see him fairly frustrated by the fact that he has to take care of these eight kids and has to, you know, figure out how how to handle them and everything. Although, you know, this is certainly the area where he's the man who works and she's the woman who stays home. And so when he is, quote, taking care of them, it really just means he just has to be making enough money for them. <laughs> That's really the bottom line. That was the definition of taking care of. Yeah. We don't really get the point of him, like, actually bonding with. I mean, there there are times he comes home with the gifts. There are those moments where he's clearly like, hey, it's dad and everybody loves him. And then he disappears and goes off and. Uh, you know, goes to a shoot in Morocco or whatever. But there's clearly love and connection between these two characters. You know, I can tell that there's this, there's this honest relationship there and this honest connection that came from somewhere. But at the same time, you can tell that there is a sense of frustration with him with the reality of things. Like, you know, the scene that really stood out to me is when he comes home from Morocco and there the two of them are uh you know snuggling on the couch and he's trying to tell her that story about uh when they put Beth on the camel and some kids come running through and she she stops to yell at them and then the, he starts telling the story again and then a kid is breaking stuff in the backyard and she like she keeps getting distracted by interruptions from the kids to the point where he's just frustrated and he just doesn't want to even finish telling the story anymore that spoke a lot about you know, to me, just his general feelings about the relationship and how frustrated he was in it, like the realities of it, even though I I think he loved the idea of it. And I think the big turn was when she gets pregnant again, and he kind of essentially pushing her into having an abortion between him and the doctors, because he's just like, no, I don't want this kid. 
I, I thought we were done. I thought we were in a place where we could move on and start doing some other stuff. So I really see his point of view. And that was what was so interesting is they really paint his point of view where you can really understand where he's coming from with everything. It's, I, I think that the, the complexity of the character comes in the fact that he's also a philanderer. Would he have been a philanderer if Joe had just been a little more of an extrovert maybe, and was, you know, more ready to just kind of hang out and, and wasn't so focused on her internal workings and the kids and stuff like that. I don't know. Or was he just going to be a philanderer no matter what and just, you know, couldn't control himself. And that's one of those things that you just never know, but it, it makes for a really interesting character and certainly really interesting confrontations between these two characters. Well, and that's it. Like what the, what they've set up in this story is, a, a sort of a, a familial, familially impossible situation, right? Like he is absolutely in the wrong for his philandering and the complications of dealing with, you know, helping her understand her condition in this period and her being more of an extrovert, being happier. Like, how do you ask somebody that when she's in that deflationary spiral of depression, like everything she's doing sort of brings her down further and further. And uh, I, I think that's the thing that's that makes this sort of magically kind of impossible situation so disastrous for their relationship. And we get some quintessentially Pinter dialogue, right? Like that sequence where she confronts him and he finally tells the truth, sort of. As they are, uh, they're yelling at each other. Did you sleep with her? You know, did you do this? He says, yes. No. I don't know. Yes. And then he does those, those uh, all of those. Like, it, like it says, Pinter dialogue to this movie is just as like mammoth dialogue to me. Like you, you hear those confrontations in in this movie, and it just feels like home. The way the patter, the way the intention changes so dramatically from, in this case, binarily, like it's it's truth and it's a lie, you know, sentences backed up to one another. You get the same sort of effect when um, James Mason attacks him. In the bar? In the bar, right. You get that same sort of experience and, and you know, it's amplified by the, the way the thing is cut and shot. Like those sorts of, of bits of dialogue, I think, really e extend, exacerbate the emotional intensity of what they're already going through. And uh, I thought it was really terrific. I am very light on exploring Pinter, so I don't have as much an understanding of like the like what to listen for i i don't know if i've ever seen a play by pinter i have seen some films like he wrote the script for the servant which came out this same year fantastic one uh he wrote the quiller memorandum which i never saw the birthday party the go between the homecoming the last tycoon the french lieutenant's woman we talked about on the show but and then the trial in uh 93 yeah i really have seen very very little of his stuff sadly so uh, i'm glad that at least you have enough understanding to kind of know what to catch with the way that he writes it was refreshing and i don't remember this same sort of style in the french lieutenant's woman i don't i don't, I don't remember it being quite so quite so dramatic but you know this is he has a, a set i think of plays that are widely read in and performed in like high schools and colleges uh, and so, you know, we did the birthday party and uh, dumbwaiter and 
caretaker and and they go they they range in terms of like you know comedic elements to deeply dramatic and and uh, social commentary but but they all have that similar sort of style and it's it's refreshing to see in in this adaptation just how how close it hues to core pinter to me and i'm certainly not a pinter expert for sure so. well yeah and i suppose like some of the difference when you look at stuff like the servant versus this versus the French lieutenant's woman, those are all adaptations that he did of other people's work. So it's entirely possible that he's, he's pulling more from the source material than he's just putting his own material into it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All of this is in service to Joe Armitage, to Anne Bancroft. You already mentioned she's a, you were a, you're a fan. Just, I mean, she really is uh, just pretty amazing and it's a stunning performance of a lot of small details and a lot of it like i mean there's plenty of conversation throughout the film that she's having but we're looking at her face a lot through this film and jack clayton you know he loves getting oswald morris his uh, cinematographer up close to faces in this like we're getting a lot of really detail faces as uh, as Joe is just kind of like listening or thinking and and putting things together or whatever. And I mean, there's that one scene with James Mason where he's at the zoo and he's kind of having it out with her. And the camera just keeps getting closer and closer until we're on the extreme close up of just his teeth pretty much as he's talking and laying into her about kind of the fact that, that um, her husband has impregnated his wife. Uh, just, I mean, but she was just perfect. I think my favorite scene with her actually doesn't even involve her husband, but it was a scene in the salon because her husband is a, a famous screenwriter. And so periodically their pictures would end up in magazines and such. And so it's a picture of their family and she's in the salon and the woman next to her recognizes her and starts up this conversation and she actually has the line about how she feels empty inside, which Joe actually says later about her own life. But that scene, the ups and downs of that conversation, it was just an amazing, fascinating conversation that you're like, how is she going to get out of this situation with this woman that was just um, is so uncomfortable? It was really incredible, um, like just the way that that was put together and just the performances. That's another one of those sequences, too. Like, you mentioned all the sequences where the camera moves in so tight to the performances. If this was a Zucker movie, we would have gotten the camera bumping into the actor. Like, it's that close. <laughs> it feels like it's that's one of the things that had me on the edge of my seat is when's it going to run into their teeth? Because that sequence is so intense. And again, it's exactly that same sort of it makes you question reality a little bit, right? And and that I feel like is the nature of of depression as it is presented in this movie. That is Joe hearing, you know, the praise, or is she hearing the bile? And you you kind of don't know at that point in the film. Like, what is it that is that is that is going on in her brain and her sort of chemistry that's that's causing that relationship to be quite as intense as it is. I I wonder if there's an angle to that if it, because there are there are so many sequences where people are speaking truth and then immediately speaking lies that are just opposite of it. Um makes me curious uh, also about the book. Like how does the book portray this kind of dualism? I I'd be really curious to check it out. I guess Penelope Mortimer who wrote it it's uh, considered a semi-autobiographical novel. I'm looking at it it does look like she had frequent bouts of depression. She had the same year the 
She wrote the book. She had become pregnant for the eighth time, age of 42. Oh, my goodness. Uh, already had a bunch of kids. Her husband urged her to have an abortion and undergo sterilization. She was happy with the decision, but during her convalescence, she discovered her husband's affair uh, with Wendy Craig, with whom he had a son, and then they ended up getting divorced after that. So, yeah, you can see just how much he really pulled out of her own life to kind of put into this story, which I, I think I can feel when I watch it just how authentic it is. Like the whole thing just feels real. And maybe that's why it works so well for both of us. Yeah, man. Talk about write what you know. It sounds semi-autobiographical only insofar as at the end of the movie, we it is unknown whether their relationship survives, but it seems to end on a note of hope. It's funny. I, I don't know if it ends on a note of hope so much as a note of... Co-parenting uh, bliss? Like settling in a really kind of depressive way. I, I think she's she needs somebody to help take care of all of these kids that she has. And she sees how how Jake is good with them at that particular point. This is, you know, I, I kind of had a... I was trying to figure out when this exactly was. I'm, it kind of... It must have been after his father died. and they had kind of parted ways. She had gone back and had an affair with her previous husband, the third husband. He had gotten uh, James Mason's wife pregnant, and James Mason was going to refuse his wife to have an abortion as a way to really stick it to Jake. <laughs> so it's like some crazy dark things going on in the story at this point. And at the end, it's like, okay, she's back with her husband. He's cracking beers. It's very much kind of a really great uh, repeat of a scene we had earlier with the beer, with the sp spraying of the the beer foam everywhere. And uh, although in this case, it's the daughter who says, oh, we can wipe it off instead of Joe. And then Joe, you know, takes the beer and it's just fade out. Sad. She's kind of stuck. And I don't know. I guess it's an interesting end. It could be read fairly ambiguous. You know, is she going to be happy? Are they going to be able to make things work? Is she just settling and she's going to be depressed and miserable? Who knows? But it's also just kind of reality of how relationships go sometimes. Man, I, I think this is a sign that I was of just how bereft I was feeling when I was watching this story that I would see the end as hopeful. <laughs> and uh, you're a little bit more realist because I think you're probably right. I mean, what we have is the worst storybook ending ever. She's literally alone at the top of a of a windmill like it is a, a, as isolating a uh, an environment as you could pretty much find. She has now been sterilized. And so, you know, when we talk about using children as a relationship tool, like she's been she's been torn away from her, you know, trusted tool, which is constant pregnancy. And now she is left with having to find this careful detente with this guy who she does not trust, but has never demonstrated anything other than really goodwill toward the kids even though even the kids who weren't his right there are a couple of scenes where he lacks patience but that didn't seem diabolical to me it just seemed like a dad who was kind of frustrated because of the noise and and um you know all of those things but he did seem to love those kids and and here we are at the end with them having to to muddle their way through. It's funny, like he seemed to love the kids, but it was such an interesting I I don't know. I guess 
it's always hard to read stories like this. Like they're like, well, it's a lot of kids to take care of. Eight kids is a heck of a lot. Let's send the oldest two off to boarding school. And so it's like, it's like, how can we write some of these kids out of our lives? <laughs> so that yeah, we can... character economy is strained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, you I'm glad you brought that up because these kids, the two oldest kids, they go off to boarding school. They seem to have the best relationship with grandma. Yes. They don't really have much of a relationship with mom or dad. Or Jack, I should say, or Jake. Uh, she, mom, Joe, seems to have the best relationship with the oldest daughter. And the other kids are always hanging off of Jake. So it seems like they've got a real zone defense going on for these eight kids. And it, it kind of works. And they had a nanny. They did have the nanny. Yeah, That's right. Because she, she right. said at one point, she's like, she was, when they moved, she was excited to get rid of the nanny because she hated her. Yep. But it's also interesting because his role as the dad, again, is like he doesn't necessarily want to take care of the kids, but he's happy to come home with gifts and do that and spend that bit of time with the kids. But it wasn't like caretaking. And I think it speaks a lot to the era where it's like, you're going to have all these kids. Well, you got to figure out how to take care of them. You know, I'll earn enough to pay for a nanny. I'll earn enough to buy presents and spoil them as needed, send some to boarding school. But, you know, it's on you. And like to the point where they she gets pregnant that ninth time. And even her mom is like, oh, why would you do this? You're such an idiot. What are you doing? And, uh, and, and that leads to the whole, you know, conversation with, with Jack about, I don't want another kid. I want to be done so that we can do other things. And of course that leads to him talking to the psychiatrist, psychologist who pushes the idea of, well, you're depressive and this is just going to medically make it worse. So we think that we can, you know, get an abortion recommended here and it will be fine. And that was really interesting. And again, that speaks to the way that men in a woman's life at this time could kind of forcibly control how to handle this sort of thing and kind of, and she seemed excited about it. And she has that fantastic moment where she's like happy crying and then really sad crying about having gone through all of this, you know, like she's glad to be done with it. And at first she's like, yeah, I can't wait. Now I finally don't have to worry about this ever again. And then she's just in tears, but it's like sad. Like she's heartbroken. Like it really hits her the realities of all this. And it just, you know, really such interesting times these were. You know, you talk about like, I mean, 1960s, you talk about all of the cultural change going on. And that that was one of them. First of all, just, you know, the the relationship with kids, but the relationship with just how easily the doctor suggested, you know, hey, while we're in there with this abortion thing, why don't we go ahead and do a full hysterectomy? Let's just knock that out right now. And it was just like such a lightweight suggestion that had so much more weight to it than how it was presented. It's one of those things that I think was already a, a statement in the film, certainly in the book, and was made positively diabolical with the lightness with which it was recommended, right? At no point was there any conversation about, hey, you know, maybe Jake should uh, step in and get snipped. Like, at no point was there any conversation about any of the men having any sort of treatment. And I thought that was really 
interesting, certainly reflective of the time, but just how quickly even those statements, this was already making a statement and it's dated. Well, and to that end, though, I mean, I did do some research on that about like vasectomies and stuff. I'm like, when did that really come into prominence? I mean, it obviously had been a thing, you know, for, you know, almost since the turn of the century. It really wasn't, though, until like the early 70s, like 1971 is when it actually became an accepted method of birth control preferable to female sterilization. So, um, yeah, so it actually wasn't viewed as much as an option at this particular point in time. But probably because female sterilization was fairly risky, had a fairly long recovery time, and we see her in the hospital for a bit of this film uh, in recovery mode, and so it, it was one of those things where it just it hadn't quite crossed that line. Uh, but I'm imagining that because through the 60s, you know, with women's rights and everything kind of coming into prominence, that probably pushed it into something that it, it became a little more of an option and a safer and easier option, too. Oh, I'm a massive celebrant of the vasectomy, Andy. Massive <laughs> celebrant. This show brought to you by vasectomies. Get yours. <laughs> Have great sex. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, interesting. Okay, where were we? Uh, James Mason, can we just, do you want to talk any more about how weird it was to see James Mason show up here in kind of a bit, ro- bit part? Very bit part that doesn't show up for almost the first hour you know he's one of the people who shows up at this party that uh, she decides to throw after everybody comes back from morocco as a way to just kind of like help her husband get over the kids and everything and just kind of like stay within his circles of fun that he's really looking for and uh jay's his character uh bob is just so funny he's like we see him in the party several times, and he's always having the same conversation, which says a lot about his character and who he is. We also learn that he's married to Beth, the actress, that we end up you know, finding out that Jake had had an affair with her while they were in Morocco and, of course, ended up getting her pregnant. And, the, you know, he's he plays for a really interesting character because there are times where it seems like, okay, is he hitting on... Uh, Joe, is is he drawn to her? Like at the party, there were a few times where I'm like, is he chatting with her because he's kind of curious about seeing if they can hook up? Like, where is this going? And then when he calls her to like get together and she's like, oh, we're going to the the zoo. I'm sorry, I can't hang out. I'm going to the zoo. And he's like, oh, great. I'll just meet you there and kind of invites himself along. And you're like, okay. And then that was weird. He, the kids go off and he kind of like puts his hand on hers and she's just like, oh, wait a minute. Where the hell is this going? And that, of course, it's it's like such interesting character moments leading up to that moment that I'm like, okay, wait a minute, is this going to be a um, a moment like in the mood for love, where it's these these two people realizes there's that their spouses are having an affair and they try to figure out what to do with it together? But no, he is like hardcore. Uh, like uh, pushing her. And I wasn't expecting that from his character. Like his character made a really interesting shift and became the very angry husband and defensive husband. Like he's pushing against her when he uh, meets up with Jake in the bar. Great little scene there. I'm surprised that Jake is the one who seemed to kind of walk away the victor there, knowing that he had been having the affair, but he's the one who, you know, pours the beer into 
uh, Bob's lap. <laughs> I, I love James Mason in this. Just really small but great role. I yeah, I do too. I I think Peter Finch cuts such a uh, they they position him and they dress him to cut such a more impressive figure than Mason. Mason just feels like the shorter, angrier cuckold husband jake has like style in his sort of emotional criminality right like he is suave he is above it all right you can't there's nothing that you can do to threaten him which is such an interesting twist when he pours the booze on mason's pants or shoes or whatever it's possible jake is chaotic evil right like he just he might just be a bad guy in in some you know maybe not so small part that he would that he would attempt such a, a social infraction when he is the one who has been you know as you say philandering I, I that was a surprise that bit was a surprise to me just a really interesting character especially seeing beth who just seems the much more i guess the outgoing passive wife who again she's the one who puts the idea out there about how jake has this idea for this script taking place i can't remember where indonesia or somewhere she's like we should all go <laughs> like, it's just like i don't know the idea of the person who is is cheating like throwing ideas like that out always um makes me laugh it's just like there's, there's such a little caution there but so funny yeah do you have someone else? Uh, I was just going to bring up Maggie Smith. The Dame. Me too. Her first uh, her first film role. This was her first film role. Yeah. And she looks it. She is How old was we. she? She is we in this. Let's see. Maggie Smith was born in 34. So she was 30 at the time she made this. Man. So weird to see her in this movie. You know, as a as a sexualized character, right? I just don't see McGonagall as a sexualized character. I mean, you'll have to read my fan fiction to see. But... <laughs> Jeez. I guess you had been in a few things before this, but I'm, I'm assuming since they called this out as like her first big role, maybe those others were just yeah. very small bit parts, you know? Right. And it's not a big part here, but it's a part that obviously drives the story. We get this sense from really the kids you know we we have a few scenes between her and joe and it's like interesting conversations about relationships and stuff like that as she's kind of living with the family and then she's when joe is talking to the kids they're like you know she yeah does she get sick a lot because she fainted and and daddy caught her and we're you know i don't know nowadays you're like oh well we know what that means he had to give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation Bobby. Yeah, right but made for a really interesting first part of the film and he completely denies it and that becomes kind of the inciting incident it, it really yeah the inciting incident of setting up you know where things are going to go with uh with joe and jake she was there i i, uh, I spaced uh, the relationship she was there because she was Whose friend was she who needed a who said she had needed a place to stay for a while? Was it his business associate, Jake's business associate, somebody like there was a what was the mechanism that had her ending up in their house? Do you remember? I can't remember either. I need to. It was one of those things where it it, co- it goes by so quick and you're not necessarily paying so attention fast. to it. And yeah. it's one of those things that I, I wanted to go back and actually 
um, get a better sense of that again before we had our conversation, but I didn't have a chance. Well, because I think it's important, right? It's the because that creates more tension. I think the relationship between who who it's all related to, and partially because at that point in their marriage, Jake's career hasn't really taken off quite as far as as it does later. But that that whole the the social politics of you know how they end up living together and working together, and who gets tired of her in the house first, I think is just an interesting um, interesting angle between the between Jake and Joe. It made for a very interesting bit. And to the point where, you know, we had moments where the two of them would come home and she would instantly like go out the door to the point where it's like, okay, what's going on? There's obviously more happening with that relationship there. To us, it was pretty obvious. And, and it gives certainly a lot of suspicions to Joe as she's trying to figure out, wait, what's going on here? But her husband was such a good liar. You know, it just, yeah, really interesting character to have there not not very broad performance but certainly fun to see her anchor the unraveling of their relationship i did think it was interesting that we we have the meeting of both parents before jake jake and joe marry as they're kind of meeting each other's parents and the parents are like you know it's the kind of the questioning of the kids and everything it's kind of an interesting scene to have yes and then also building to toward the end of the film when both fathers end up passing away and you kind of have you know how is that dealt with in both cases and you know the the way that things unfold with them as they're dealing with their emotions in those situations too the parental interview reminded me just a little bit of when harry met sally (laughs) (laughs) stay with me right the interviews of the couples that are still together after so many years i felt like that's that's a really kind way to to talk about relationships interviewing the parents who say don't do this (laughs) you don't need another relationship you're just gonna have more kids like don't don't do this uh (laughs) especially how was it was her dad who bought them the apartment or the house in London it's old but it's but I've I've gotten you started and he was so surly just really hateful kind of the whole time like <laughs> I regret that you're even in the picture but I did buy you a house and I thought man I, maybe I could take that if if you know he were also buying me a house but uh but I thought that was just a really funny like how clear-eyed their parents were about the mistake that is the relationship for whatever reason uh, I thought that was a really neat addition to just the story overall. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely comes into into play with relationships more with her parents because we see a sense of we get a sense of their relationship a little bit as, uh, you know, uh, her mom is the widow and has a few conversations about life with dad and everything. And and he was the gardener and kind of like really took care of her. And you get a sense of kind of the way perhaps joe wanted her life to go you know she kind of wanted her husband to be the guy who was home and gardening and taking care of stuff so they never actually had to go buy vegetables things like that and and it's just like i don't know if it was if that was kind of part of the reason also that she uh, i mean we know her first husband uh, she was a widower from him he died during the war but the other two she divorced and so it's like is she constantly trying to find the right husband to be with, you know, where exactly is the, uh, the line for her? Yeah. Right. Like you kind of wonder the way the movie ends, especially if we go down 
your approach where it's not necessarily a hopeful ending, but a, but the careful detente, it, uh, it, it makes me wonder, like, when is she going to find her next husband? Because, you know, you have to ask yourself, is she capable of an independent, you know, life? Probably not. It, it does seem like it's going to take a very specific type to be with. And that's that's why Bob was such an interesting character, because you're like, oh, is this husband number five? Is that where we're going here? But it never quite moved there. And so that's what I found interesting is like, it seemed like we could have, but it really seemed like she seemed so settled with Jake that she wasn't even considering looking for other options like i mean the early part of this film when she meets jake she's with her other husband and they already have that draw i don't know it it just seemed like she was ready to move on so is that going to happen i don't know it 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 made for a really interesting uh, portrayal of it i got the imdb page open and you know the trailer because imdb auto plays everything the trailer is running and it it has the you know, as she's crying, the breakdown sequence when she's crying in the store. Inherits, yeah. Uh, she breaks down and like inherits, yeah, whatever that is. It says that this movie is the portrait of a woman deeply in love. As if to say, this is a story about someone who's so in love that she can't handle life under the weight of love. She loves so many people all the time. And that is the relationship to you know that that's what the trailer is pitching as an alternative to her mental health crisis do you think that's what the trailer is really trying to pitch us you know i don't know i i saw a few things like synopses and everything with this film where the way they were pitching this i was like huh okay like one of them i i i saw the the synopsis it it said that Joe was a, how did it describe her? Like a, um, an unusually fertile woman. <laughs> and I'm like, huh, I don't know Jesus. if that's how I would go about describing the plot of this film. It just, it's so weird. Like it is a character drama. It's a psychological portrait of this woman trying to work through her marriage work through her own emotions uh you know figuring out her relationship with wanting to have children her own depression and i guess in the light of some branches of storytelling it's difficult to kind of basically sell that to people so they go oh i totally want to go watch that yeah right so mm. if you're like a woman who's in love, it's like, oh, it's a love story. You know, I can see it's right. in the scope of these things. Fertile, loving woman. Yeah, and of course, then you, then you see the, the crazy fight that the two of them have, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> which, is, which is great. One of the things I think is so interesting about that fight is that it's actually, like, it it, sh- it, it is... <laughs> it's weird that I'm celebrating this. I, I want to... I need to walk that back a little bit. It's not great that they're fighting like they are, but at least it's even, right? It's not one spouse abusing the other. They're in a real knockdown, all-out physical fight with each other because it is the expression of the ex- explosion of of her rage at his infidelity and how it is manifested. And I think it is shot well. It 
it doesn't come out of the blue, even though it erupts out of the blue. Like you, you expect that something like that is going to come. You kind of want something like that to come. And man, it just feels like in, in terms of the, the cinematic scorecard, <laughs> like it's, it's earned. It's earned and I'm in it. And I, I, I felt like that was, that was, I'm, uh, <laughs> Don't get in, in fights <laughs> with your spouse, everybody. Don't. Please don't. But the movie interpretation is okay. It, yeah, it's it's well well crafted, definitely well performed. I guess it took like two and a half days to shoot that, uh, which is a lot of fighting. And I wrote down in my notes, just going all the way back to very early in our uh, history of podcasting when we were talking about the Bourne movies, the Jiggly Monkey Cam. Like, I'm like, <laughs> yes. wow, this is like handheld close-ups, like right in the middle of this fight. We are back to the Jiggly Monkey Cam with this one. And it was kind of exciting right. to see, like, the again, going back to the cinematography, this black and white cinematography of this film, they really crafted something just like Jack Clayton knew how to put images together and and working with his cinematographer here. It was just, just beautifully put together. Oh. I loved it. And the overhead shots, especially in the fight, like the spinning overhead shots when she's like grabbing his hair with two hands and jerking his head around. Oh, delicious. Yeah, really was. Yeah. yeah. That was great. No. Yeah, really uh, a wonderful surprise of a film that I am uh, thrilled to have uh, discovered through this. Yeah, me too. I can't wait never to watch it again. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I guess that's it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Vakislav Draganov. Oriol Novella and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films... 
Head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, Andy, it's award season. You know, that's why we're here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, this movie had, it wasn't big in the award circles, but it certainly, you know, got some good recognition there. Six wins with six other nominations at the Oscars. And Bancroft was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role, but lost to Julie Andrews in Mary Poppins. Definitely an audience, uh, a very cheery audience favorite there. Um, at the at the BAFTAs, this is specifically why we're here. It was nominated for Best Film from Any Source, but lost to Dr. Strangelove, which is, you know, I in the scope of things, I can see why I, Dr. Strangelove is a fantastic film. But, you know, I can see why this would be nominated. This was nominated for Best British Art Direction, Black and White, but lost to Dr. Strangelove. Nominated for Best British Cinematography, Black and White, and it won. It also won Best British Costume, Black and White, Best British Screenplay, and uh, Best Foreign Actress, Bancroft. Those are all the wins. It was nominated for Best British Film, but lost to Dr. Strangelove as well. At Cannes, uh, Best uh, Actress, uh, and Bancroft, was uh, she won, tying with Barbara Berry for a film One Potato, Two Potato, which I had never heard of, but read about it. It sounded really interesting, so there's one that I added to my watch list. It was also nominated for the Palm Door, but lost to The Umbrellas of Sherberg. Uh, Bancroft won Best Actress Drama at the Golden Globes. And at the Laurel Awards, Bancroft was nominated for Best Dramatic Performance, Female, but lost to Betty Davis in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Uh, the Laurel Awards were an award uh, created by the Motion Picture Exhibitor magazine that ran for a period of time. So, you know, it did okay for itself. It didn't... Um, blow anybody away but it did well i was kind of surprised that jack clayton didn't get more recognition as director with all of this Uh, we didn't talk about clayton much are you a claytonian well i you know i didn't know that i i didn't really know that i was i haven't really considered it but you know pumpkin eater now great gatsby something wicked this way comes like the innocence obviously like these are all movies that i like and that he is behind them before I was really, you know, tracking this uh, Jack Clayton as a as the director. I'm, it surprised me that, you know, I look at his list and I've I've seen and appreciated, you know, a good handful of his movies. He also did a really interesting film called Room at the Top. Another just surprising, touching, strong psychological drama. Lawrence Harvey, Simone Signorette are in that one. I mean, I think that he is a person who knows how to capture interesting um, psychology of his characters on screen very, very well. And it makes me want to rewatch some of those later ones, like uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and just see the other things he did. I've never never seen Our Mother's House, which he did after this, um, so I definitely need to check out more of his work. Makes me want to watch Something Wicked This Way Come Again, but that that's one of those movies that I sort of blocked from my memory because I watched it when I was a kid, and it scared the crap out of me. Yeah, it's it's rough going for young brains. Uh, really fun. Good timing. You know, th- that and the innocence, like as we record this, you know, day before Halloween, it's a good time to jump back in and maybe revisit those two. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so the box office, it would not surprise me, Andy, to hear that you might not have had great luck with this one since we hadn't even heard of the movie. 
<laughs> little tricky, little tricky. Yeah, these tough older films, especially ones that are overseas, I could not find much on Clayton's film. Um, I really want to know who the British Eddie Mannix is, how to track down their information, because that would certainly <laughs> help. Certainly the BBC has somebody. Who is that person? If you know, let me know. Uh, but I could find nothing about this movie's budget, except that it was considered a prestige picture when it was made, and it did have a relatively large budget. I did find it released July 4th, 1964 in the UK, and then November 9th, 1964 in the US, opposite My Fair Lady, Roused About, Stage to Thunder Rock, and Pajama Party. It looked like it earned $1.2 million, according to Variety, which is about $11.5 million in today's dollars. That was here domestically. And even though I couldn't find much, I did read that it was a box office flop. And Clayton himself said that the film was the victim of, quote, bad timing, which uh, seemed to be an issue with a lot of his films, unfortunately. Well, whatever happened, I the result is a, is a solid film and a, a rough drama about some tough subjects. But man, well executed for me. Really glad we found it. I know you wouldn't go back to this one. This is on your added to your list of films like this Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Yeah, there, there's a list. I don't need to watch that again. Yeah. For me, I'm like, I would absolutely check this one out again. I just, the, the cinematography is gorgeous. I would love to see this one on the big screen. I mean, geez, just the way that this film looked and just really kind of just the way that Pinter. And again, maybe it's Mortimer's novel as well, but jumping back and forth in time, like the flashback structure, I just, I was so impressed with this movie. Just for me, it was like a complete find. Absolutely loved it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that is it. Uh, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. Looking forward to this one. John Frankenheimer's The Train. They strafed it. They sabotaged it. I want this engine back on the rail. If we had ten times as many men, it couldn't be done. I tell you it will. Do you hear me? I tell you it will. They bombed it. They cursed it. To hell with London. We started this whole thing for one reason. To stop the train. Because the Allies were going to be here. Or where are they? Every day they've been doomed. And every day a man has been killed for thinking they were just over the next hill. I say to hell with it. Now they want us to paint the train? Let them blow it up! They died for it. It carried their tears. Why did you come back here? You want everyone killed? Men are such fools. Men want to be heroes. And the widows mourn. It carried their fears. Colonel! Stop them! What can you gain by the death of one old man? What he did can make no difference. The train will go on. You have the authority. You can stop it! It carried their hopes. You crazy bastard. We want to get to help you. Have you thought of that? Who are you going to get to help you? Me. I can't fight. That's two of us. Small army. It carried their nation's honor. This is our pride. What we create and hold for the world. 
There are worse things to risk your life for than that. It carried them to the peak of glory. You can ride to an air raid? Watch me! You dump you old boat! Get out of there and get under cover! Get off my train! You damn fool! We'll be ready bombs any second! Get off my train! You can't get through! The switch is closed! Open it! It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right, Andy Letterboxd, uh, it's time. How do you handle this movie? Where, from where do you steal stars? 
to offer to the pumpkin eater? This is a tricky one. I I feel like it's a five-star film. Like I'm like, I'm just so blown away by this film. Like I have a hard time. Like, what is it? Why wouldn't I give this five stars? It's one of those movies where I'm like, is there a reason I wouldn't say five? You know, and I'm not quite sure. Like, should I just say four and a half just to feel comfortable about it? I'm not not exactly <laughs> sure why I'm struggling with it. Um and I'm like, maybe I just need another viewing. But I don't know. I think because I was just so impressed, I think I'm just going to say five and uh, just leave it at that. Wow. That's uh, that's I would not have expected that from you. I would have expected more in the realm of quibbles, but I'm thrilled to see five stars. I am also a five star on this movie. Wow. Believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, it's it was such a surprise. And the performance is totally. like, I just I, I couldn't get over how much I cared about all these characters and the relationships. Like it's just so well crafted. And do you have any movies that you can think of right off the bat that are named from childhood rhymes that are about your name? <laughs> I don't know if I have any childhood rhymes. Andy Pandy. Are there any like, there's not like um is there an Andy childhood rhyme? I don't know. Maybe if the, if we can come up with one, I'll have to see if there's any movies that are named after them. But I just don't think there are any that I know of, but see, I feel like, yeah, for that reason alone, I, of all people cannot give this anything else less than five stars and a heart. <laughs> well, either because that or you use it against It's practically dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't use the title in the movie, Andy. It's true. That is <laughs> Had they true. used the title in the movie, it would have been one star. <laughs> That's how much it would be. No, I'm, def- I'm five stars on it. I, I think it is, it's right up there with other greats like Butterfly. And yeah, for sure. Beautifully done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, remember, you can find us at uh, Letterboxd. I'm at Soda Creek Film. Pete is at Pete Wright. And of course, we are at The Next Reel. So what did you think about The Pumpkin Eater? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we are going to be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. So you went you went high, and I went ahead and latched on to low, only because <laughs> it has a resource. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to start because we need to end on a high note, Natch. Okay. Well, uh, this, good. this is from sword emoji, V in a circle emoji, Unicode code for X uh, symbol. <laughs> wow. That's who added this one. So okay. good luck. It's fine. It's just that after you've become a connoisseur of domestic malaise and ennui, you might just find you don't cling so tightly to this particular depiction. (laughs) Why? There's a link to their list of troubled lovers, under-pressure breakups, anti-natalism, divorce, domestic abuse, and infidelity movies. And it's a whole list of movies, many of which I haven't seen. Uh, And we should totally like share that somewhere because you know who doesn't need more of these in their lives <laughs> <laughs> oh so funny there you go well we'll we'll have to share that for sure i've got a five star by melina uh who had this to say five stars on heart every single man in this film pissed me off thank god 
for Anne Bancroft's face. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> love that face. Love those close-ups. Right there with you. <laughs> Thanks, Letterboxd. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.